This is episode number 725 with Dr. Kim Stackenfeld, research scientist at Google DeepMind and affiliate professor at Columbia University. Today's episode is brought to you by Gurobi, the decision intelligence leader, and by ODSC, the Open Data Science Conference. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today's episode with Dr. Kim Stackenfeld is one of my favorite conversations I've ever had, on air or off. She's an exceptionally gifted, super fun explainer of complex topics. Kim is a research scientist at Google DeepMind, the world's leading AI research group. She's also an affiliate professor of theoretical neuroscience at Columbia University. Her research interests include deep learning, reinforcement learning, representation learning, graph neural networks, and a brain structure called the hippocampus. Today's episode should be fascinating for anyone. In it, Kim details her research on computer-based simulations of how the human brain simulates the real world. Simulation of a simulation, yes. Um, she also talks about what today's most advanced AI systems like large language models can do and what they can't. She talks about how language serves as an efficient compression mechanism for both humans and for machines how a leading neuroscience theory called the dopamine reward prediction error hypothesis relates to reinforcement learning in machines. She talks about the special role of our brain's hippocampus in memory formation, the best things we personally can do to improve our cognitive abilities, and what it might take to realize artificial general intelligence. All right, you ready for this extraordinary episode? Let's go. Kim, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's lovely to have you here in person for this episode. Um, it's always nice when I can wrangle a New Yorker to film in person. I just, I think it's a lot more fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, stare at a screen all day. It's nice to like have yeah. some in-person interaction. <laughs> so you must have, so yeah, what's that like in terms of, uh, so you're split between both Columbia University and I guess it's the Google offices. It's kind of like the main campus in yeah. the meatpacking district, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, how does that? How often do you go in, and how often do you go into one or the other? Yeah, so I'm at um, I'm at DeepMind, uh, in, which is based in the in the Google office in New York. That's where DeepMind's New York presence is, and I go there uh, four days a week. Um, oh, really? And then in person, four days a week. Pretty much, yeah. Right. I think Friday is sometimes a bit hit or miss, but like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I mean, it's it's just nice. I, I, I like spending time with people. It's it's nice to have the social element for research. Um, and then Mondays, I go up to Columbia. That's my Columbia day. Meet with students. Go to the lab meeting. Um, meet like meet with the other theory professors. Um, so that's really fun. Nice. Yeah, that's a really. I mean, I'm so jealous of that. I really miss going into the office regularly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a kind of a, a dynamism and just a kind of like being aware of other people's lives that like I don't, Yeah. Like, no one wants to stay on a Zoom call longer to talk about their weekend or, you know, it's yeah. like, you're like, just get me out of here. Oh, there's just something so energizing about it. It is, it is really, it's kind of weird how zapping it is, how it just like takes your energy away to totally. socialize on Zoom, whereas in person it feels like it really like feeds you your scientific enthusiasm and just yeah. like, you know, 
the, the benefit of the flip side is getting uninterrupted work in sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So we met uh, because it was actually it was this random sequence of events that happened to me on the internet. These kind of weird things that happen, I guess, when you're mm -hmm. when you don't go to an office. Um, is uh, I was looking up an image for a previous guest, um, whom I think you know her name, Roluca Adapapa. Yeah. And um, and this great photo came up of her on an MIT site, on an MIT page. And the person immediately below was Noam Brown, who's also a great guest that we've had on the show. And it was this, so it was a list of amazing young people in AI at MIT. And I looked through and uh, you popped out. Uh, and I think also because of like your neuroscience background, which I have as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I looked you up on YouTube and I was blown away. Like. <laughs> The quality of your speaking, we're going to include some links to some of Kim's talks in the show notes, and I encourage you to check them out because it there, it doesn't get better than your ability to deliver confidently, humorously. I absolutely love the content. So <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, I get, I mean, like any sane person, I get nervous for public speaking, but I also kind of love it when I get to talk about neuroscience uninterrupted for like a good patch of time. Nice. Um, so I'm glad yeah. that came through. And then we've got the show for you here because our audience loves getting deep in the technical weeds. So we've got an exciting blend of neuroscience, of machine learning, and the interaction term, neuroscience by machine learning. Um, so let's start off with um, talking about simulated intelligence mm. and how that might generalize. So. You recently spoke at a lecture series at Columbia University. And again, so here's the first video of yours that we'll be including in the show notes. Um, and so it appears online with the intriguing title, Can Machines Learn Like Humans? In the lecture, a word that appears often is simulation, which is also often featured in your research papers. And we've got then a short list of those to include in the show notes as well. So what's the significance of simulation in the context of human intelligence? Yeah, so actually in, in preparing for this interview, I, I looked up simulation, like what actually is the definition? It's something we kind of talk about a lot. The definition was imitation of a system or process. It's not very helpful necessarily, <laughs> but I think the, um, the kind of like intuitive or classic example I think of is when somebody tells you, think before you speak. Um, what they mean is like, imagine what you are going to say and imagine how it will go over. Will people be delighted with that? Will people be offended? Is the consequence what you intended? Um, and this process of like playing it out in your head, constructing, using your mental model to construct the situation and then see how it goes, that's basically simulation. Um, it seems like it's an enormous facet of, of human intelligence. I think like we, there's, there's a large body of research on this and I think it's also just like very intuitive and familiar as, Part of the experience of being human that you you try stuff out in your head you think things through you see how they go it's a big part of human reasoning um, it's also a big part of how we augment our intelligence the, a big like technical method that we use a lot for large-scale scientific or engineering questions is we build simulators um, a, a stat i learned from from in our brains uh, no, we build oh. them on computers as well. Right. Yeah, thanks. That's a really helpful, <laughs> that's a helpful clarification. Yeah, so I mean, we, we build them in our mind. We use mental models to simulate things. Um, we also build simulators uh, of, of different physical systems. We use them for lots of stuff. Um, I learned this stat that like 
eight out of 10 of the large, the world's largest supercomputers are being used for like simulating different complex physical processes. Like it's just a huge part of how we do science and engineering. For sure, we actually, we recently had an episode focused on on this. So uh, Professor Margot Gerritsen mm. uh, in episode 719, it's, it's a, like that episode is focused on physical simulation. Um, and so she specifically is interested in fluid dynamics, mm. which also turns out, I hadn't really thought about this, but lots of things have kind of fluid dynamic properties. They don't have to be literally liquids. Yeah. So like air flows or even the way that like um, the earth can be moving, uh, you know, predicting volcanoes, that kind of thing. Like yeah. there's like, um, so the, yeah, tons of these kinds of physical simulations. And yeah, I think like a lot of these supercomputers get tied up in forecasting weather, for yeah. example. Yeah, that's a huge one. That's Very hard prediction for. problem. Yeah, I think we'll we'll talk about fluid simulation a bit because that's something I've worked on too. Oh yeah. Um, and it's really just like this classic. It's it's really a classic example of why you would want simulation for physics. Like we know the rules; they're pretty simple. We know the equations, but actually, like comprehending their implications is computationally challenging. That's kind of the role that simulation, I think serves in general. You can kind of set up a situation, but playing it out, seeing what the consequences are, requires some sort of like mental or computational effort. Mm -hmm. um, and so like physical processes like weather, that seems to me like quite a different thing from modeling human intelligence or human behavior, because with a physical process, we have well-defined equations, mm -hmm. things like gravity. We're like, okay, we'll put in the gravity equation and you know that's gonna have this impact and mm -hmm. we've got friction and whatever. You, you have all these different equations that kind of work together and the computer through a whole bunch of crunching is able to uh, be able to simulate a piece of the ocean or a weather system or whatever, mm -hmm. and forecast climate over coming decades. But with intelligence, I mean, where do you even, like, where do you even start with that? Like, what, equ what equation do we have? Or like, yeah. So, I mean, this is this is true for a lot of physical systems we'd want to model too. Like, if you want to apply the same sort of simulation techniques to biological systems for which we don't have great mathematical models, you start doing something that looks a lot more like the brain does, which is trying to observe data and then build a predictive model rather than taking some mathematical equation and then obeying it or executing it or solving for it. Like you, you kind of have a model of, of weather too. If I see clouds forming, I suspect it's gonna rain soon. I have a predictive model. I don't really know how like, you know, a, a voxel of airflow will affect one next to it, but I do know clouds means rain. Um, so there's a, a level of abstraction. A voxel quickly there. I think that's that's from brain imaging that that really comes from, but it's the idea of like a pixel in three dimensions. Yeah, a volumetric pixel, I should say. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's kind of a cute word, but it is jargon. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess like, I don't know, like give us, give us a sense of like what, like what you're trying to simulate with these experiments, like how mm. you run them, where the state of the art is. Yeah, so I mean, the, the basic approach um, that we're interested in is trying to see if we can augment or replace more classical simulators with learned simulators. Um, and this is an approach that, that folks on, on my team have been working on for a while. There's like a, a number of, of collaborators I have at DeepMind, Pete Patalia, Alvaro Sanchez-Gonzalez, um, Toby Pfaff, a bunch of colleagues who've been working on this kind of stuff since even before I joined the team. Um, the, the philosophy is that a lot of things we can model well. We have good mathematical equations that describe 
um, how the system will go. And we can try and solve for this analytically or, or just use these rules to predict what will happen. Um, but these are limited in a couple of ways. Sometimes they're just really computationally expensive to run. Like you can run them in principle, but you need tons of money, tons of time, tons of compute in order to do it. Um, and you can use machine learning to make approximations um, right. to kind of like get uh, to, to do almost as good, but not quite as good with a lot less cost. Um, so this is one application we've worked on a lot. Um, another application, which I think is like in some ways even more exciting is that there's just some things we don't have the mathematical equations for at all. We don't have like anything particularly close to the equations. Um, neuroscience is filled with examples like this. We have um, very poor mathematical models for really describing the dynamics of the system at scale in a way that relates to intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, so building, um, observing the data and then being able to build a predictive model from what you observe, um, that just seems like such a powerful approach for being able to get a handle on some of these different kinds of processes. Garobi Optimization recently joined us to discuss how you can drive decision-making, giving you the confidence to harness provably optimal decisions. Trusted by 80% of the world's leading enterprises, Garobi's cutting-edge optimization solver, lightweight APIs, and flexible deployment simplify the data-to-decision journey. Garobi offers a wealth of resources for data scientists. Webinars like a recent one on using Garobi in Databricks, they provide hands-on training, notebook examples, and an extensive online course. Visit garobi.com SDS for these resources and exclusive access to a competition illustrating optimization's value with prizes for top performers. That's G-U-R-O-B-I dot com slash SDS. Cool. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. I've read recently, particularly in the context of the same kind of climate prediction, mm -hmm. that there are groups... I think even if I remember correctly, like even NVIDIA is wading into this kind of thing themselves yeah. Yeah. to have these learned models of weather mm -hmm. so that you can do it at like a thousandth of the compute with maybe only a small percentage difference yeah. in model accuracy. Yeah, NVIDIA is definitely in this game. I mean, partly they uh, they build awesome hardware for um, that, that's useful for building the computers that can simulate these kind of things, whether you're using a machine learning method or not. And then they also have some pretty cool machine learning methods for, for graphic simulation and, and trying to capture a system in a, in a high degree of detail. Cool, very cool. All right, so um, could we use these kinds of simulations? Like, the better we make these simulations, I mean, first, like, if there's some way that you can kind of concretely describe, like, some of the experiments that you've done, like, some of the things that you're trying to simulate with mm -hmm. a learned intelligence simulation, um, that, like, that might be helpful to kind of, like, understand. But then as a kind of, like, direction to go in with that, mm -hmm. do, does having better simulations of human intelligence help us perhaps perhaps approach artificial general intelligence, mm. AGI. So, okay, um, I'll answer the, the second part of the question first, like yeah. does having uh, good simulations of human simulation help? Um, I think, I mean, so one thing that I, I, I think is kind of useful. Good simulations of human simulation. And so this is the key thing here, is that specifically yes. your simulations are often of our mental simulations. Yes. So the, the thinking before you speak, mm -hmm is the kind of modeling that you're modeling. Yes. 
simulating a simulation of a simulation. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, that, that's exactly it. So I think basically in, in general, understanding um, human cognition or just like the brain's cognitive mechanisms for solving things um, potentially just has a lot to add. I mean, right now, like the, the state of the art language models, the really big language models that do fantastic jobs at stuff, chat GPT, things in that family, like they, they imitate human behavior right now. They, they don't um, imitate human, the, the aspects of human thought that are not captured in behavior, but they imitate human behavior. And the fact that we have gigantic data sets with very rich human behavior has just been fantastic for getting these models off the ground. Um, you, can, you can just get, you have a warm start on language processes that you can then adapt to lots of different kinds of language-based tasks. Um, being, there's a lot in language data that isn't necessarily, that, that does, isn't reflective fully of what's going on in the brain. You can imagine that's like what, what's happening between the ears and the mouth could also have really useful elements of, of the cognitive process that aren't present in the text form. So I think in general, just like understanding what's going on in, inside of the brain has a lot of potential information. Like what, what kinds of, if you thought before you spoke, what did you decide not to say? That probably has a lot of information about social structures and your goals and your thinking process and, and things like that. Um, if you paused for a long time before speaking, what were you thinking about in that time? Like that, that's really like, that's very interesting information, information that I think would have a lot of potential. Um, the limitation, of course, is just the data. As, as you know, it's uh, pretty non-trivial to record, record what the brain's doing and, and model it. Um, as it relates to simulation in particular, there's just, there's a lot of extra benefit because that relates so much to our ability to imagine new outcomes, reason about a world that's, that's different from the one that we have. Um, if we want to say, what's going to happen if I, if I do this differently? Um, what would have happened in this data if something had been different? These are processes that humans reason about with simulation. Uh, it drives us all mad, doesn't yeah, it? Like, yeah, it's like this constant. <laughs> I mean, we were even, we kind of got into it a little bit before we started recording. Uh, I actually didn't even really finish talking about this, but like one of the, like when we, when we were talking about what you do for a living, and I was, just, I was starting to describe how jealous I am of what you do and how like, you know, like there's, like there's things about, like it's so amazing to me, like you get to be a deep mind, Arguably, but I think, in my opinion, the best AI lab to be working in in the world, um, while simultaneously being Columbia faculty. I mean, like this is like doing neuroscience in intersection machine learning. I mean, this is like I'm so jealous of what you're doing, and I'm like, <laughs> where did I mess up along the line? That like, like and so I'm simulating <laughs> just in the run up to this interview. I'm doing so many simulations in my head of like, well, okay, I messed up there, I messed up there, I messed up there. In terms of like, okay, I'm like, some things I got right, where I was like, this is what I started to explain to you before we started recording is, uh, during my PhD, mm -hmm. while other PhD students were getting getting very specialized at like doing recording electrodes in a ferret, mm -hmm. I was like, that's not a super transferable skill. Spending five years becoming really good at putting recording electrodes in a ferret, there's not a lot of places where that is gonna come in it's handy. It's important, but it is specialized. <laughs> yeah, yeah, super specialized. <laughs> And yeah, you get amazing results from it, and you know I can totally get why somebody would be super passionate about that one specific thing. But I was like specifically like looking at transferable things, and I was like, okay, teaching myself better programming skills, mm -hmm. machine learning. Um, these are going to be useful, you know, kind of whether I stay in academia or not. Um, but yeah, one of the really big things for me is that so I my PhD was called neuroscience, mm -hmm. but 
I was working with machine learning labs. And so we had this multi-year collaboration with people to the University of Edinburgh, which is amazing yeah. for AI research, has been for decades. And so I have, I can't remember the exact, I think it's 2010, I have a NeurIPS paper, mm -hmm. um, like working on this thing with people from Edinburgh, but like I've never been to NeurIPS. And like, I'm like, what, what was I thinking? Like, why was I going to mouse genomics conferences in my PhD <laughs> and not NeurIPS? I mean, mice have some pretty sweet genes. Like, ah, they do. <laughs> yeah, no, I think in, in terms of, uh, I, as, as you were speaking, I realized like, I might be proposing some really like anxious machines or like, we, we need to introduce like an extra dose of, of neuroticism. Like I, I want a machine second guessing <laughs> its every move. <laughs> like, really? That kind of thing would, you know, it's, it's, uh, it can obviously have a, a, a regime where it makes us less happy, but it, uh, I don't know, it's a big part of how we optimize ourselves. Yeah, I think if we're gonna simulate intelligence in machines, I want them to be just as miserable as all the rest of us. It seems Constantly only fair. going over their mistakes. <laughs> That would be great. Yeah, you definitely don't get a sense from interacting with them that they're doing a lot of second guessing. <laughs> like, <laughs> that they're really like deeply apologetic when they get it wrong. So, so what do they? So these simulations that you do, like what? Are, like what's the output or what's right. the input? Yeah. So we've worked. We've worked on a couple different domains, and the um, the the kinds of like the machine learning side of my research, where we're working on on learned simulation, on on learning physical dynamics. We've focused on like a couple different types of physical systems. Um, one example is fluid dynamics. Um, we, uh, we, col we collaborated with some researchers in New York at, at Flatiron Institute, um, astrophysicists who are interested in fluid dynamics because it turns out a lot of stuff in space is made out of fluids. Mm. So like when galaxies form, that's like a, a fluid dynamic event. Mm. Um, so, and they, they're particularly concerned with trying to make these simulations run more efficiently because as they, as they explained it to my non-fluid dynamics brain, like space is big and like galaxies are pretty hot. So you need a really high resolution and large simulation to get everything. Um, so what we were, basically the, the kind of system we used for this was we would use what simulators they currently have to make a simulation of some fluid dynamical process, whether it was like the mixing that would occur at the boundary of a galaxy or some other kind of like more classic fluid dynamic system. Um, we would simulate it at high resolution. These would be pretty expensive to get. Um, and then we would make it lower resolution and try and train a machine learning model to predict what's gonna happen without access to all these details. Um, this is really like, this was kind of a, a specific project in some ways, but it's really exemplary of the role machine learning can serve in trying to make simulations more efficient. Um, in, in physics, if you wanna run something more efficiently, you're, you're basically just simulating a different physical process. You're simulating what, would, what it would be like if you just had a much coarser system interacting. Um, and if you want to try and say like, okay, I have this core system, but I want to know, I want to know the correction. I want to know how it would be like little different and subtle and hard to mathematically describe ways if it was higher resolution. Um, there's patterns to that, but they're hard for humans to articulate. They're hard to express in math. Um, so you can use machine learning to try and pick up those subtle patterns and make the same predictions, but at lower resolution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but the thing, like the thing that led me immediately to my first question, like this galaxy stuff, is super interesting for yeah. sure. But like, I, I I don't know to what extent you were joking or whether it's like whether there is something that you're actually like mm -hmm. looking into here. But when I was talking about making sure that these simulations of our mental simulation mm -hmm. are brooding all the time, mm, yeah, uh, masticating over and over, 
over, you know, just chewing on these past events and <laughs> wondering why they didn't go to NeurIPS all those years ago, too. <laughs> um, uh, you said they don't seem angsty. Yeah. So was that just was that just a joke, or do you actually are you interacting with some simulations of mental simulation, where you are in some ways getting a sense of what's like what they're. Yeah, that's a funny. Are. That's a funny question. So, that's an interesting question. I was partly just joking, but I do think that there's some <laughs> substance to it. Like they're they're rolling it out once, and they're using they're they're gathered like. You know, a, a large language model is gathering all of the computational resources it okay. has and playing it out. So it once. is LLM. So you have like LLM simulating. No, sorry. For the for the fluid dynamics, we're not using LLM. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, not okay. for fluid dynamics, of oh. course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so I think maybe another. I mean, the, these physical systems we're doing are not are not really like ruminating either because we're not asking them to solve a problem with a simulation. We're just right, saying right. simulate. And yeah. we, we leave it to the physicists to ruminate and to try different, to set up different initial conditions yeah. and play the model again and again and gather statistics. That's, that's sort of the, the rumination is um, initialized by the, the researchers using these as a tool. Yeah. Um, uh, another project that, um, that I worked on was maybe more, uh, like it, it was more task oriented. It, it used simulations to try and design solutions to different physical problems. Um, so it was basically like we have a fluid dynamics simulator. It's it's trained with a learned model. So it basically like learned fluid dynamics just by looking at them. And we want to see, okay, here's a fluid challenge. A bunch of water is going to fall out of the sky. Can you catch it in something? Or can you move it over there? Or can you like oh. you know navigate a system of pipes oh. to, to put it somewhere? Oh. And there, the process we use involves running the simulator again and again and again and refining it according to what happened. Um, right. Yeah. This, this okay. is a, yeah. Okay, okay. So you are simulating a mental model of a physical process. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So yeah, so it's not, so there isn't any, at least at this time, simulations of like, uh, you know, make a plan for like grocery shopping, mm. or like, you know, you're hosting a dinner party uh, for six people, uh, come, come up oh, with yeah. a plan for a successful dinner party so that um, this cute person at the dinner party like wants to date you or something. Yeah, there, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's work on this kind of stuff. I don't, so I haven't worked much with language models. I think I like okay, using okay. them as examples because they're intuitive to people right, and also right, just right, like right. vastly familiar and, and uh, kind of exemplary of why yeah, AI yeah, is exciting yeah, right yeah. now. But we're, I, the stuff I've done has been all with like physics simulation yeah, yeah. or so, navigation. So, yeah, um, so your stuff is like, okay, uh, like so that's, that's a concrete example. It's like yeah. there's a bunch of Water falling from the sky. Yeah. Um, come up with some kind of solution that catches the water. Yeah. And it has to think it through. So this kind of this reminds me of kind of like there's stories of like prisoners of war who like will get through the like decades that they were interned mm -hmm. by imagining that they were golfing yeah. the golf like their local golf course that they used to do all the time. Yeah. And then when they get out of prison they're like better at golfing than ever huh. or I don't know I don't, yeah. I don't know how much if that's actually like is fact or more like urban legend but yeah could be I mean there's <laughs> definitely like well documented uh, studies on visualization and uh, I think like t longer reaction times is often associated with more performance the hypothesis being that there's some simulation or some like some visualization or or process that is that takes time that must be dynamical because it takes some time mm -hmm wherein people reason about things and then improve, even on really short time scales. Yeah. Um, 
there's also, um, yeah, there's, there's, it, it does seem like it's, it's part of the process. I mean, there, there's some work too more in the like uh, applied psychology world of like positive visualization makes you perform better. Yeah. Um, I didn't like walk over to your apartment today thinking about all the ways I could blow it. Like I didn't think that would be a healthy. Like, oh, we um, still have plenty of time. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. It's uh, going, going so far so good, but uh, yeah, yeah, we're gonna try. We're gonna try to mess it up. <laughs> oh no, yeah, so because it's interesting. So there's that kind of simulation of like the positive psychology of like simulating um, just, you know, the things are gonna go well and yeah. you kind of like visualize like success. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also this kind of, and so that's probably something to do with like, and we are gonna talk about like the hippocampus and, uh, and, and that kind of stuff later, neuroscience stuff, but um, yeah, that's probably something to do with like, yeah, just kind of framing your perspective on some event, potentially mm-hmm. like a, a stressful event. Um, but then there's also, Interesting, like like this simulation, like this idea of like the golf swing. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect like that that probably has something to do with like so we have cerebellum that is like which I think literally means like tiny brain mm-hmm. <laughs> at the back of your brain, and this is responsible for motor coordination, and it has like tons and tons like the density of connections there is much higher than in other parts of the brain. Yeah. Um, and so, and this seems to be like, so something like regularly practicing something like a golf swing or playing the piano, um, you will, it, it seems like it's associated with developing a lot of connections in this part, in this cerebellum and yeah. it kind of coordinates that, like that fine grained motor activity. And so it seems it's without being an expert in this at all, mm-hmm. um, it seems like these kinds of simulations that we run in our own head allow something like that like those cerebellum connections in the case of like the 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 golf swing or the piano playing to form mm. even in the absence of the physical work yeah that's cool yeah i mean i i also not a cerebellum expert so I'm a little bit outside of my wheelhouse but the cerebellum the the kind of classic uh cerebellum example is this um this experiment people do with prism goggles um, so you put prism yeah, goggles yeah, yeah, yeah. on and they roll that you probably like did this also in, at some point. I've never done it, but I've seen videos of people. It's fun. Yeah. They also give people, well, okay, I'll, I'll explain the experiment, but the, um, the, basically you put these goggles on that shift your vision to the side a little bit. They just take all the incoming light and shift it a little bit so that your, um, your vision is not aligned with what's happening in the world. And then they have you try and throw a ball at the wall. Um, and hit a particular target. And of course, at first you miss um, because your your vision is off and you're you're aiming maybe a little to the left. Um, if you keep these goggles on, keep practicing, eventually your throw corrects. Um, and this has been linked to cerebellar learning, that this very like rapid correction, this adjustment to align your motor behavior with your observations, this is something that cerebellum like classically does. And there's a lot of connectivity between parts of cerebellum and parts of motor cortex. The motor learning makes a lot of sense. But there's also really similar, there's different lobes of cerebellum that have different connectivity to the, to the rest of cortex, the rest of your brain. And it seems like similar circuitry is present in another part that connects to the more cognitive parts of your brain, the parts that are less about motor and more like thinking. Um, I don't really know what these do, but like it's kind of hypothesized. Maybe they also serve some kind of error correction, but on your cognitive processes. Um, and that, that like seems, yeah, I think so, you know, I, I don't totally know. Seems reasonable to speculate about, though. Be where our data-centric future comes to life at ODSC West 2023 from October 30th to November 2nd. 
Join thousands of experts and professionals in person or virtually as they all converge and learn the latest in deep learning, large language models, natural language processing, generative AI, and other topics driving our dynamic field. Network with fellow AI pros, invest in yourself in their wide range of training, talks, and workshops, and unleash your potential at the leading machine learning conference. Open data science conferences are often the highlight of my year. I always have an incredible time. We filmed many super data science episodes there, and now you can use the code super at checkout, and you'll get an additional 15% off your pass at odsc.com. Um, so yeah, I'll be sure to include a link to at least one of these prison videos, it's pretty fun. And there's also, I'll try to look up, I'm not try to look up, I, I'm writing a note to remember to look up. There's a really, this is like a random tangent, but I really like, um, there's an artist, Ben Folds, um, and he also had a band, Ben Folds 5. The musical artist? Uh, the musical artist, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he has a song where he uses one of these prism stories, like he uses it as the first of one of his songs. Oh, cool. Where it like explains basically what you explained about the experiments. Oh, neat. In a, in a verse of one of his songs. Oh, and that's cool. And it's something like he's relating it to life more broadly somehow, mm. I forget how. But. I should have him on the show, <laughs> play that guitar. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that would be an incredible guest. If anyone out there can get me Ben Fold on the show, <laughs> we'd at least do a five minute Friday with him uh, <laughs> as the guest. Um, no, seriously, if he wants a Tuesday slot, we'll do it. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, um, so I, I've had a whole, a whole bunch of thoughts. Um, really quickly one, which is one that I didn't prepare for, but I've just had my own, uh, I've been running some simulations mm -hmm. in my head on things to say. Yeah. And um, one of the simulations that popped up was, do you happen to know someone, he's based at DeepMind, I believe in London, Although he used he he did postdoc work uh, here in New York at NYU, his name is Neil Rabinowitz. Yes, I he's awesome. I love Neil Rabinowitz. Um, he's he's just like yeah. How, how do you know Neil? Did you Neil and I were we did our PhDs at Oxford at the same time. No kidding. Yeah, yeah so. he's awesome. He is so smart and so like poetic. He, he <laughs> was he was doing recording from ferrets with electrodes. I'm pretty sure. Oh, like when I give like that was kind of like my random example of like some very specific thing to be learning. Yeah. But uh, I'm pretty sure Neil was like yeah. doing exactly. He's branched that. out. I mean, he he. Yeah, I guess he maybe had a similar. I don't know. He's, he's doing uh, machine learning AI stuff now. He's yeah, well, in deep mind. Well, he was doing. I even so in our master's in neuroscience mm -hmm. year, we had to do research projects. Like you'd spend a term doing a shorter research, just like a few months in different. Yeah. And so you, you could do. It was at least two. These, of these rotations uh, into different labs. And I remember when he was uh, analyzing his results, he used a neural network, an artificial neural network, mm. to analyze his results. And at that time, I had like never come across someone having done that before. Oh, so cool. he's always, I think he's, he's had like machine learning applications and mm -hmm. kind of cutting edge. Because at that time, like to do neural, I don't even know what you would program that in to yeah. do it in, it would have been, 2007. Oh, wow. So, yeah. yeah, like, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was in high school. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I recently saw some fascinating, I don't know how I came across it. I stumbled across that Neil had been doing, and so it, it relates to the simulation stuff because I remember a few years ago, I came across that he had done a poster at a conference where he was he was trying to understand like a simulation's like intent. Mm. 
like it was so I, I thought maybe I was I was hoping for less stuff? of like a hmm and more of like a hmm and a continuation yeah it was theory of mind yeah, stuff so yeah. it was like simulations of theory of mind yeah and it was kind of like it was like one machine learning algorithm is watching another one learn mm -hmm. and it's trying and the first one is trying to guess what the second one might do yeah yeah so I oh, I don't remember it was a little while ago I don't remember that works super well but yeah it was about uh, trying to operationalize theory of mind for machines, this this old idea in cognitive science that we have a simulation of, of each other's minds and how we're going to think about things, yeah. um, is often kind of also extended to that, like, we, you know, maybe I have the same model of myself that I do of other people, and this is, like, deeply related to consciousness and how we reason about our own minds and, and other minds in the same space. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a really, uh, it's it's really... It's been very influential in thinking in like social psychology and, and thinking about how people reason about um, each other. I think from the, you know, I was going with the language model example earlier, like having a model of how your user will respond and how you will respond all kind of bundled up in the same system has, has some elements of it, but a lot less explicit as a model. Yeah, so there's, I don't know, there's fascinating stuff there, and yeah. maybe we can just put a pin in that as yeah. something that like, now that we've had this conversation, I've written a note down to try to get Neil on the show. Yeah, that um, would be great. Yeah, it would be an incredible episode. So maybe so stay tuned for that an episode on kind of simulations of theory of mind and and that was several years ago. So his research might have developed beyond that now. Or, but yeah, it'd be great to have him on. So okay, so back to what we were talking about. I I was kind of trying to get. Um, so now I think I have a better understanding of the kinds of simulations that you're doing. So you're doing mental models of physical processes, and I I think. You know, you said you were going to answer this question first, but I, I don't feel like we've talked about it too much yet because I've probably mm -hmm. taken you off on too many tangents. But does do these kinds of simulations, do you think that they are helpful for realizing artificial general intelligence? Like, are they, do you think they're yeah, kind of a step on the way? Um, yeah, I definitely do. I think that there's um, basically the, I guess there's, there's different kinds of simulation. I think, like, one, there's... The models that we have doing, like language reasoning, for instance, language models, and they are predictive models. They're, they're making predictions about what's going to happen next. Um, that prediction is just synonymous with the, the actual thing that's going to happen. Like it's, it's not like there's like multiple different things that it's reasoning about. Um, I think one of the things, there, there's a couple different use cases, I think, for more explicit um, simulation. Um, and they come up often when you want to try to uh, use these models for like a particular function. So in the in the design example, where we're using physical simulations to design something, if you don't get it exactly right on your first try, you want to be able to iterate and improve and try multiple different configurations to see if something else is better. Um, a particular use case of them, I think, especially the way like thinking about the way humans construct mental models, mm -hmm. is that we can combine things in different ways and try them out. So if you want to think like, how do we go beyond what we've directly experienced? Yeah. Being able to create new combinations of things, new compositions of things, yeah. and try them out, see what happens, um, seems really important. There is even actually, there's a bit of an analog to that, even with the way that LLMs make their next prediction, because you can mm -hmm. have um, you can have different kinds of search over the possibilities. So there's things like beam search mm -hmm. or contrastive contrastive search yeah. that um, that allow you to kind of run this simulation several times and then pick the best one mm -hmm. um, or pick like mix and match even a little bit uh, to kind of get the best 
language output. And obviously that increases the computational complexity, but it's kind of like, it's kind of, it's like having it, like these kinds of search mechanisms uh, with LLMs, mm -hmm. it's kind of like asking it, okay, five times, think through in your head what the best thing to say is, mm -hmm. and then pick the best one or mix and match from the five things you thought up. Yeah, yeah, you can think of it almost as just like ensembling these models. I have a bunch of them, I'm gonna try them out, I'm gonna yeah. see which one is, is best. Um, yeah, yeah. Ensembling, yeah, that's just a technique where you have multiple instances of the same model under like slightly different random deviations right. um, and, and try them out. So I mean, there's a, there's a, I think I'm kind of pausing a little bit on this question just because there's a sense in which these models already are a kind of simulation. Like right. if I wanted to simulate, I, I could, I could uh, ask ChatGPT, like, what would happen if I, uh, you know, submitted this essay? What would the teacher say? What would the grade be? It would say something, and that's kind of a simulation. Um, but it's a little bit different than the way we use simulation and all of the different like abilities that it can afford in terms of reasoning more abstractly and reasoning about things that are outside our direct experience, outside things we've we've seen before. Mm -hmm. um, so. Something else, and I realize we're like I'm, I keep going back to large language models, but I guess it's something that's like kind of interesting. Bit and, of an attractor right now. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we actually recently, uh, at the time of recording, at least, um, uh, Kirill Aramenko, who founded this podcast and who was host of the show for the first four years, um, and he still owns most of the show, and he he sent me a Slack message. He come he come back from like a month away mm -hmm. on holiday. And he was like, he listed um, like the last 10 episode numbers and he was like, LLMs, LLMs, LLMs. He was like eight of the 10 yeah. were focused on LLMs. And I was like, I didn't really do that on purpose, but it just seemed like it's like, you know, we get amazing guests on and it's what they want to talk about. Yeah. And then I kind of, for the episodes that I'm doing solo, like I often feel like it's kind of, it's the thing that's changing most quickly and the listeners need to kind of be aware of mm. the most. Um, and he, he, yeah, he, he didn't think that was totally wrong. But I also then said, I was like, and look at who, you know, who we have planned as the next guests. We won't be talking about LLMs. And then I, and you were an example of someone. I was like, it won't be an LLM episode. Yeah, but I just, <laughs> well, I mean, it has, it, A, it's just, it's omnipresent. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's relatable to people. So it's, it's an easy example to draw on for that reason. But then also like the, the performance of large language models really has just like changed my perception about what kinds of, what kinds of things can be possible? I mean, a big yeah. topic I've, I've thought about has been like, how do you get something new? How do you, like machine learning, learning is fundamentally about patterns in your past, patterns in your experience. It, it works on things that are familiar almost by definition. But we all kind of have this intuition like, oh, you can learn to do something new or you can use things you've learned and still do something new, generate something creative. And there's ways in which these models do that and there's ways in which they don't. And thinking about that kind of decomposition has just been really, uh, it's, it's really like, I think solidified a lot of the ways that I think about this now. It's been very, it's, it's been very illuminative. Yeah, that's well, do you have anything more that you'd like to add on that? Yeah, I think the, um, like uh, the, a big thing people talk about with language models is in-context learning. That you can have some kind of uh, pattern or template or thing you've seen before, but adapt it to a new context. So like right. a recommendation letter for a new person, a biography for a new person. There was a, a while where everybody was uh, saying like, write a biography for Kimberly Stackenfeld and sending it around like, haha, that's pretty funny. And you know, got some stuff right and some stuff wrong. Um, the, um, so, you know, it can do something that's, uh, that's novel, that's like applying um, right. its 
its patterns to a, a, a new context, something that isn't yeah, already Yeah, read data. a job description in the style of a 40s gangster. Totally, yeah. yeah. And that, that kind of like mix and match, that's like a form of, of composing novel things. Um, what it won't, what, it, what kind of works about it is it's seen such a gigantic, rich pile of data. It's seen so many different patterns, it's seen them applied in so many different ways that it can generate new combinations of them. Um, the kind of thing that it, it won't necessarily do, just like the, the kind of thing that's not really a strength of the method, is that it won't go beyond the complexity of anything it's ever seen before. Um, it's not going to write, I mean, fundamentally, it can't write a story any longer than it's seen before. It's, it's bound by its, its context length and the length of stories it was trained on. Um, it's not going to like take a, um, you know, if it's, if it's seen, if you've told it what happens, I, I don't know, I guess like I, I think of dominoes as an example because it relates to physical exemption, it, it, uh, simulation. It won't do the equivalent of having seen uh, a row of 10 dominoes and then telling you that effectively the same thing will happen for a row of 100 dominoes. It won't like extrapolate or build on the parts it's seen. So it can mix and match things. It can make novel things. It can definitely do, like, I would consider that abstract, compositional, in some ways, like, the elements of creative. Um, but it doesn't necessarily tell you how you would go from seeing some kind of um, simple rules or some limited data set and construct something more sophisticated than anything you've seen before. Mathematics forms the core of data science and machine learning. And now, with my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course, you can get a firm grasp of that math, particularly the essential linear algebra and calculus. You can get all the lectures for free on my YouTube channel, but if you don't mind paying a typically small amount for the Udemy version, you get everything from YouTube, plus fully worked solutions to exercises and an official course completion certificate. As countless guests on the show have emphasized, to be the best data scientist you can be, you've got to know the underlying math. So check out the links to my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course in the show notes or at johncrone.com slash udemy. That's johncrone.com slash u-d-e-m-y. That's super fascinating. Uh, yeah, and so uh, it, I don't know if you have any thoughts on like what we can be doing to bridge that. Um, something that I used to... Um, argue in a pre-GPT-4 world, mm -hmm. which like, as you say, GPT-4 has vastly changed my perspective of what could happen in our lifetimes with AI. It's also, it also leads to a lot of soul searching for me around being human and like what value we can provide. Mm. Like it's like already, like you see these glimpses in that today, like that it just does, there are so many questions now that I know it can answer better than almost anyone mm -hmm. on earth could. Because while yes, there are some constraints on what it can do, like you just described, its ability to hold so much information mm -hmm. and be able to blend that together kind of however you like. Yeah is unreal and it's like you know you 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 can for so many questions you could be like well you know to answer that question i need to you know there might only be a few experts in the world that would like understand something to that mm -hmm. level of detail obviously it would be hard to find them much easier to ask just gpt4 but then if you're like okay well i'd like to blend you know two different research ideas and actually this is something that i recently talked about on the last week in ai podcast i was mm -hmm. a guest host on that show and I was uh, reviewing, an, I, I was talking about an Economist article that was describing how 
uh, we can be using today, and even more so in the future, uh, LLMs like GPT-4 to be scouring research mm -hmm. and suggesting where there might be opportunities, like cross-disciplinary opportunities. Because it can be so expert in so many different things, yeah. and so it can even do things like it could suggest to you, like, hey, you know, you might want to consider working with this other researcher at this other lab because they have this other expertise, and you guys could do this thing together, and it could potentially lead to these discoveries. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, no human, no single human has been trained on the entire internet, right? Um, probably, which is probably <laughs> fine. But, um, right. but you know, I mean, I, I think like it definitely has uh, seen more more information of a particular type at least, more, more information that is text-based than any one human. Um, and it will have uh, like pretty powerful interdisciplinary abilities because of that. I mean, one thing it won't do, um, if you, it might not propose the idea in the first place of using ChatGPT for, for research or something. Like it, it uh, the, still the, the decision, it, I, I kind of think, I really do kind of think of it as a simulator in some sense. Like if you have uh, some, idea you want to flesh out, like what are particular, what are maybe interactions between material science and neuroscience that could be useful? Um, it'll generate a couple ideas. Some of them will be potentially interesting. Some of them will be probably nonsense. And you can use that in concert with your own intuition about what are problems worth doing, what's important to do, your own judgment about what's grounded and factual and what's kind of just maybe statistical nonsense. Um, that kind of uh, integration with human performance seems really, really powerful. Um, but like, there's still in thinking about what are the role, what role do humans serve? Like, are we are we getting automated by this? I don't. It it does some stuff that humans currently do, but I, I don't see it like totally supplanting human uh, cognition. Uh, I, yeah, like I. I, it's like a calculator for words, like a really yeah, good. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I agree, and I I agree for now. Yeah. But like the point that I was trying to make is not that GPT four does everything yet. Obviously, it, it it isn't this. You know, and there's a lot of ways that we can be defining AGI. Mm -hmm. But you know, in terms of AGI, just like being an algorithm that can that a single model that can do all the various kinds of uh, thinking and tasks that a human can. Obviously, GPT four is nowhere near mm -hmm. that today. But what I meant by what I was saying earlier is that it's, it's such a huge step change from GPT 3.5. Yeah. That it, like, and who knows, maybe, maybe yeah. yeah, it's like, yeah, maybe scaling, you know, will we'll run, it will run its course mm -hmm. and it'll turn out that with scaling, we, there, you know, there is some barrier that we run into. Mm -hmm. But it seems like we still have some orders of magnitude potentially of scaling to go, mm -hmm. plus like some clever ideas on maybe how we can achieve some of the same, you know, like everything right now is relying on a transformer architecture. Yeah. Which is, I mean, maybe just kind of a random choice. And it could be the case that there's some way more computationally efficient way mm -hmm of having an attention mechanism that is even more effective mm. over long stretches of language. Or, so yeah, it's just kind of this, it, it's just this sudden, like I just, yeah, this trajectory of like, of like uh, number of parameters or like complexity of approach, GPT 3.5 capabilities. Mm -hmm. Six months later, <laughs> GPT 4 capabilities at, you know, this, at, you know, more tokens more parameters. Uh, it, it just seems like we're going this trajectory where I'm like, it's so, in, like, like the, the number of cognitive tasks that got usurped that only humans could do in that one step 
yeah, I don't know. It just seems like we're moving in a really interesting direction. And I'm, yeah. I'm not giving you much of a chance to speak. And I know you have, no, like, it's okay. <laughs> like, like I, 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 I know you have a really, really interesting thing to say, but there's a specific context that I kind of want to frame whatever you're about to say is in, which is kind of relating back to your neuroscience stuff. So I, um, pre-GPT-4, I recorded two podcast episodes, episodes number 588 and 590, uh, so that, uh, these came out in July of last year, July 2022. And I called them AGI is not nigh part one and AGI is not nigh part two. Mm. And a big part of, I think it was in the second episode in particular, I made the case that the way that we are modeling intelligence is so simple. Like we are using, for example, the transformer architecture and just scaling it up. And at that time in July of 2022, it seemed to me like that, like there wasn't enough nuance, enough sophistication mm -hmm. because the human brain has things like the cerebellum that we talked about earlier, the hippocampus, which you particularly have a lot of mm -hmm. um, research background in. There are these, there are so many different kinds of brain structures that to me seem like altogether like these, these different kinds mm -hmm. of intellectual processing need to be like combined together. We can't just be like, okay, let's take one thing, the transformer and scale it up. Um, and so, I don't know, I'll finally, I'll let you speak. Yeah. I, just, I, yeah. I mean, a note, I guess there's a note about transformers. I mean, tra transformers are really, uh, are really cool. And one, one thing about them, like a lot of the things about them are uh, ways that they just, are good for problems where you have a huge scale of data. They, they scale up well, they, they train efficiently, they seem capable of learning diverse problems in like a giant patch of data. But then there's also things about the way that they structure, the, the, the structures over which they operate, which are um, very conceptually compelling. And, and one thing is that the, um, the form of data they take in is very general. Um, traditionally sequence models, models that are trained on, on prediction problems like, like language, um, they take in um, a sequence of data. You have time step one, time step two, time step three, time step four, um, and that's just that's a bunch of vectors in a row. Um, if you have uh, a model that operates over image data, it will take in an, an image, a, a two by or like a, a two dimensional um, picture where each pixel has uh, some some values associated with it. Um, the kind of data that transformers take in is a set of tokens. Um, these tokens could be um, elements in a sequence. They could be pixels in an image. Um, they could just be like uh, something more general purpose than that too. They could be particles of a fluid that you want to consider their interactions. Um, they could be um, you know, objects and you want to consider about how they're going to bump into each other and relate to each other. Like The fact that they operate over this very uh, general data structure and can uh, process different kinds of relational structures, whether it's um, sequential or image-based or, or more like uh, relational, is, is a really deep property that, that might actually make them um, apt for lots of different kinds of processes. Um, so I think that there is something like kind of general purpose about this. And in, in terms of like their role in sequence modeling, um, they, in a lot of ways, started modeling sequences not as sequences. That they, they started making it really easy to learn interactions between words in a sentence that are really far away from each other. Whereas in sequence models, it's a lot easier to reason about, to, to reason about relations between things that are close together in a sequence. Um, where most of the linguistic structure is. But if you want to, for instance, remember the name that was said at the beginning of a sentence, like that kind of relation can be really, the, the fact that you can reason more flexibly about these can be quite useful. 
Um, so just like as architectures, they are they are pretty interesting, and especially like yeah, I don't know. I think as as they relate to a problem with as much structure and like variety as language modeling, I think it's interesting that these have kind of surged to the front of the pack. Yeah. So the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about all that you're talking about here with transformers and them being so mm -hmm. flexible, is that and, and part of why I now feel like my AGI is not my thing and human brain structures argument that I was making a little over a year ago. I think that what has been, what I've realized is that it can turn out that the way that we allow machines to train, for example, by training them on all of the internet, mm -hmm. which obviously a human brain, I mean, maybe not obviously, but it seems a human brain would never do that. It seems like no amount, like there's just, there's too much, like the brain doesn't live long enough to possibly mm -hmm. be able to read all that and then retain it and like, so, even if GPT-4 is not able to capture the full breadth of human intellectual capabilities, simultaneously, it is, it is doing something in the same way that the calculator example is a really mm -hmm. good one because the calculator can do all kinds of arithmetic much faster than a human brain could. Mm -hmm. And so similarly, this tool it can be capturing intelligence in a new way and doing it in a different way. Like maybe it doesn't make any sense at all to be thinking, oh, we're gonna need like a hippocampus part and a cerebellum part if we're gonna like have AGI. That might not be the case at all. We can, we can maybe, we can have a machine that can do all the kinds of things that our brain can do and more, mm -hmm. um, maybe just following some kind of simple thing like scaling up a transformer. Yeah, I think, and I actually, I, I remembered, I, I think I didn't make this connection explicit, but this the, the reason that the, the generality of the data structures that transformers operate over occurred to me is just like thinking about their usefulness for multimodality, this ability of the brain to process different types of information and process it in different ways. So like got different types like audition and vision. Yes. Um, yeah. This is my literal next thing that I also wanted to talk Lovely. about. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you've got different mo modalities uh, like vision and audition, then you've got different kinds of uh, processes, like cognitive processes, like um, hippocampus, for instance, we think of being really good for episodic memory and then other cortical areas for more semantic memory. So memory for your own experience versus memory for general purpose knowledge you have. Mm -hmm. um, this kind of, um, the fact that transformers can operate over general data structures makes them good for multimodality and also potentially good for different kinds of cognitive processes that can be expressed in in like relational terms where you want to, to reason about how the different entities that you're thinking about relate to each other. Um, they, right now it's all kind of a big, big bag of computation. Um, and this is um, in some sense quite powerful because it lets you seize on like every possible statistical correlation. On the other hand, you might not want that. You don't wanna, if, if for instance, the uh, information that you've trained on has changed, you don't wanna have to relearn how to produce language or something. If, the, if, if I wanna incorporate updates from the most recent news cycle, I don't want to be retraining a part of my system that knows how to produce language or something like that. This is something called the continual learning problem. It's been a problem in neuroscience for a really long time. How does the brain keep updating itself, keep acquiring new knowledge, new abilities without just overwriting every other thing that it's it's learned before. Um, it doesn't maybe seem intuitively obvious why that would be a challenge. Like why would learning new things 
necessarily compete with what you've already had before. But when you actually start trying to implement this in machine learning systems, it's really hard to update without kind of overwriting or erasing or, or like recontextualizing everything mm -hmm. you've learned before. Catastrophic forgetting. Catastrophic forgetting. A it's, beautiful phrase. Yeah. It's so dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It didn't just, it, why isn't he just forgetting? Yeah. It was catastrophic. No, it's, it's, I, I actually never totally understood why they didn't just call it forgetting. But, but I think a lot of people are drawn to the drama of the term. Not, um, only, not only did it forget how to do this task, but it also caused an earthquake. Yeah. <laughs> it was so bad that we just kind of like lost a, a chunk of history or something. Yeah, yeah I think uh, catastrophic forgetting is this problem uh, specifically of overwriting information um, that, you've, that you've learned previously when you're to learn something new um, and yeah so that that brings up uh, there, so yeah so this, this leads perfectly to the next thing that I want to talk about because with like this catastrophic thing catastrophic forgetting this catastrophic thing um, or the continual learning problem this ties into the idea of negative transfer mm. so this idea that and it seemed up until recently so for example uh, it's a few years ago now the Gato model yeah it was uh, it was a uh, it was an approach. Maybe it was kind of like around the time like, like GPT two came out, kind of era. And Gato was the idea, and I can't even remember now. You you might, but I can't remember what kind of architecture they were they were using and like scaling up for that. It was transformers, sure. but it wasn't it wasn't like the same. It wasn't exactly the same as like the GPT kind of setup somehow. I, yeah, I'm not sure exactly how it's I, I but yeah. Yeah, I can't remember exactly. But, but with Gato, they observed at least something to do with the architecture or the training mm -hmm. regime or something. But Gato was designed to be able to handle a very broad number of tasks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they observed a negative transfer, where as they tried to add in more tasks, it would perform worse. But what we're seeing now in the GPT series mm -hmm. architectures recently is positive transfer. We're often taking more examples, more kinds of tasks, gives the uh, the algorithm, for lack of a better word, a better mental model mm -hmm. kind of of the world. So for example, and I wish I could off the top of my head recall exactly this research, mm -hmm. but I remember from a few months ago a research report coming out around um, a language model improving ones that had been trained on a visual task. So, mm -hmm. so by so this kind of ties into the point you were making about transformers being useful for so many different kinds of data types. Mm -hmm. And so the algorithm is able to represent information and encode across these different modalities. Mm -hmm. So that so if you in your training data, you have lots of spatial examples of like layouts of rooms and like it kind of it provides better context, just as you might imagine it would for a human, mm -hmm. I, I don't take my, just as it, <laughs> it's not literally the same mechanism, but um, in to, to give like a human analogy, um, if you uh, looked at a bunch of drawings of the layouts of a building, mm -hmm. and then somebody asked you a language question about, you know, how do you, how would you get from the front porch mm -hmm. to the back porch or whatever? To, how would you get from the front porch to the living room? Mm -hmm. uh, and if you'd studied these kinds of drawings, uh, you'd be able to do that, that mapping from the spatial reasoning 
to linguistics. You'd be able to express it verbally. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I don't know. So this positive transfer, which seems to be happening more recently uh, with the GPT architectures, I think it's, it's uh, I don't know, it's, I think it's potentially an interesting breakthrough. Mm -hmm. There's probably some limits on like how much yet. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think like the, um, basically more data is a blessing and a curse. You have to have, uh, you, you can potentially do more. It has more information in it. Um, but it's also uh, more burdensome to handle. Like the, the example that kind of came to mind um, just in this conversation is like, if I, if I bought more clothes, would I necessarily be better dressed? Like maybe to a, a point I would have uh, better outfits to choose from, but at a certain point I would be a crazy hoarder who could barely like claw my way through my sweaters Ooh, to get to my dresses or something. Yes. Like it's, it's, I love that. once you have more, if you That's have more information, analogy. you have to figure out how to organize it properly. Yes. So you're not getting like um, the compression artifacts of maybe using, uh, like putting too much information in the same spot. Uh, the kind of, forced analogy here would be like if I had crammed too many outfits into one closet, yeah. I could you not just, get one thing. Every day you always use whichever one just happens to be like on top. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. like the closet is yeah. stuffed. Or maybe, and this the analogy sort of breaks here, but I can't, there's no equivalent of like an average of three scarves, none of which is really perfectly appropriate for the occasion. <laughs> like you can't average clothes, but like that, that is kind of, that sort of uh, everything kind of blurs together is not really what you want. So more more data is is not always a benefit unless you really can organize it and know what to do with it and know how to find it when you need it. Um, this is something that's like magnificent about the brain and studying the, the hippocampus. That's the, the brain area that I focus on. Um, it's involved in memory um, and trying to, and it seems like it like plays in a special role in helping us organize new experiences, which seems like such a such an important function for how we cope with you know the gigantic data set that is our lives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this has been like we're. I had you know like topics planned, yeah, and we've we literally we've gone from the first <laughs> question, and we have. Um, so you know, regular listeners will know that we have a brilliant researcher named Serge Massis, who you know like probably ninety five percent of the time when I ask a great question on the show, it's probably his question. Um, and so he comes up with these amazing topics, and he digs so far into your research and. We just, we kind of asked like the first question and then we've been going off forever <laughs> since. But so, you know, we did have stuff in here about the hippocampus, for example. So, uh, so, so yeah, let's talk about that more. Let's talk about like the hippocampus, why that's important. So um, I, I remember from my days as a neuroscience PhD student that, uh, so the hippocampus, yes, critical for memory formation, um, and also, interestingly, there seems to be some kind of like spatial thing going on mm -hmm. there where like, for example, famously, um, this probably isn't the case anymore because of GPS rotting everyone's brains, but it was the case uh, some time ago, probably up until a decade ago, that to be a black cab driver in London, mm -hmm. you had to pass... I can't remember what it's called. An like, incredibly extensive yeah. taxi driving exam. You have to memorize like every street in London. Yeah. Streets in London also are not easy to memorize. No. They there's almost like a rule against right angles, and so nothing makes any sense. And there's just tons of street names. And, exactly. Yeah. So it's super super crazy. Mm -hmm. And so they have they anatomically in brain scans in not functional MRI scans, which so uh, with functional magnetic resonance imaging, you get a sense of what parts of the brain are being active at different times. Mm -hmm. And so that's typically what we use to like get a sense of brain activity and, and what's important. But in this case, 
just an anatomical scan, a mm. static scan of these cab drivers' brains showed that their hippocampus was bigger than yeah. average. Yeah. So hippocampus has um, a... The, the two things it's studied for the most are its role in episodic memory, our, our memory for experience, um, and its role in spatial navigation. Um, and there's a, there's a tight tie between these. Um, there's, there's really like many ways that our model of space and memory might interact with each other. Um, one is just that if I wanna navigate around uh, a city, I need to remember where stuff in the city is. That's just kind of basically a memory problem. Another aspect of how memory and spatial representations interact is that as I'm laying down new memories, their spatial context might be really important. The fact that you know, I experienced something at one time in one location, um, that location is really important for understanding, for organizing my memories, for, for organizing my experiences, for knowing what situations that will be relevant to again. Next time I'm in that room, maybe that's when I want to remember those things. Or if I'm thinking about that room, other things that happen in that room, those are memories you might want to stitch together. Um, so hippocampus has been most studied in these contexts. The taxi driver example, super wonderful, super famous experiment. Um, hippocampus, one thing that's really unique about this area is you have um, a, a significant amount of uh, adult neurogenesis there. What that means, yeah. the fancy, yeah, this is kind of uh, like, you know, neuroscience speak for new neurons get born. Um, in most parts of the brain, you don't get new neurons. If you yeah. recover from a stroke, you made new connections, but you didn't make any new neurons. But hippocampus, you can make new neurons. So that could be the reason that hippocampus, maybe hippocampus basically swells up with new neurons when you study for the taxi exam. Right. Maybe just people with big hippocampuses are more likely to pass the test. Like it's a little hard to right. deconfound, but, um, but yeah, it, it grows. It, it's how you acquire new information and it grows through your life. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and this uh, neurogenesis is a really fascinating thing because for decades it was assumed mm -hmm. because in most of the brain, it turns out to still, as far as we know today, in most of the brain, like you're saying, stroke patient, you know, you don't see just because there was loss of brain that some new brain forms, like mm -hmm. there's just a few places where um, we seem to have new uh, neurons born, new brain cells born. Mm -hmm. The hippocampus, one of them, the nose, the other one. Oh yeah, the olfactory bulb. Olfactory yeah. bulb. Yeah, it's weird. Isn't yeah, the it? olfactory bulb actually has a ton of uh, circuitry in common with the hippocampus, which is really? so strange. Yeah, so I mean, one thing that's really um, unusual about smells compared to other sensations is just its its geometry is pretty unique. Like if I um, if I'm looking at something in my visual field, um, maybe it's you know it's over it's over. I guess you guys can't hear if you're not watching the video, but maybe it's over here. It's at some x y coordinate in your <laughs> visual field, <laughs> um, and it can move continuously through your visual field. If I'm listening to a pitch, it can rise continuously or fall. Like ooh. Right. 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 Um, smells are much more discrete. Like the way our, it's, it's a, a particular molecule. It's different from other molecules. It activates a particular receptor. It's yeah. very specific. It's not on a continuum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. not on a continuum. It's very specific. Categorical and, classification algorithm needed for. Exactly. And that seems to be, that seems to be related to how we represent memories in hippocampus too. That the, the role of hippocampus as a memory system is to represent what's unique and specific about a particular experience. Um, and so this kind of like very um, sparse, non-overlapping organization seems to be really related to its ability to keep that aspect of experience, what's unique and special and different from other things and not um, you know, necessarily bleeding in with all of the other similar experiences you've had. I had not known that. That yeah. is really fascinating. It's cool. I had, um, I don't want to take up too much of the, the podcast episode with this time because the, the audience would probably much rather be hearing new things from you. <laughs> 
But I did, um, and, you know, so going back to, I was describing earlier in this episode about how this, in, the, in our first year of, so with Neil Rabinowitz, when we were at Oxford mm-hmm. together, um, before you went off and did your PhD on your like specific project for many years, you did a one-year master's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's what, what they call in the UK like a one plus three program or whatever. Mm-hmm. One-year master's, three-year PhD. Maybe in my case, that dragged the page to drag on a little longer than three, <laughs> which happens. I think that's more than normal, the exception <laughs> <Yeah>. in my experience. <laughs> but um, but, uh, but in that one year masters, um, we had to do. Uh, in addition to the big research projects, we had like papers on kind of more discrete topics, and I did one on neurogenesis, hmm. and I thought it would be really fun to frame it as like a. I framed this what was supposed to be serious academic work as like a self-help article of like how to grow more brain cells. And I was like, yeah. there's like exercise. Yeah. Um, exercise is like one of the biggest ones. Yes, exercise promoting. is huge for neurogenesis. Um, yeah. I think um, uh, exercise, there's a lot of stuff on exercise and dopamine. Like I think for, yeah, whatever reason, even though people don't, often don't report finding exercise rewarding. It seems to activate a lot of the reward circuits, the circuits mm. involved in, in motivation and, and continuing to experience. And those circuits in general also promote a lot of neurogenesis, like neurons mm-hmm. that are born around the time you also experience some dopamine, they're more likely to, to stick around. Yeah, um, yeah, there's yeah. a really small tangent off of this. Is, have you ever heard of type one fun versus type two fun? Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was a big theme in grad school. I don't know if that's <laughs> where you heard about it too. Uh, yeah, so there's so I was recently on the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast uh, talking about. I was a guest on his show. Uh, Ken G. He's a big, he's a big YouTuber. He has two hundred fifty thousand subscribers on YouTube, um, and he's a he's a data scientist. Ken, obviously, the show's called Ken's Nearest Neighbors, mm-hmm. so there'd have to be machine learning. <laughs> uh, and um, he, yeah, and he, he hadn't heard of Type One or Type Two Fun, so I was like, mm-hmm. well, maybe it's not very universal. Like, I don't know. So I'm delighted that, and so yeah, so it's interesting. So exercise is like classic type two fun, yeah. where as you're doing it, it rarely is enjoyable for its own sake. Whereas like um, alcohol, drugs, sex, these are like type one fun. Yeah. It's like, they're just intrinsic, like you just dopamine and serotonin explosions. Yeah, uh, it's happening. not complicated to enjoy them. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, uh, I think another term for it is extrinsic reward as opposed to intrinsic reward. Mm. Intrinsic reward, intrinsic motivation, you know, yeah. satisfying a sense of curiosity. Like, you know, yeah. it's not, it's not, you don't get paid for being curious necessarily, but like it's, it, you could learn something that's gonna be useful down the line. It's sort of an investment. Um, whereas extrinsic reward, that's that's right away. That's type one fun. Yeah, and so it's, yeah, I guess it's kind of interesting that maybe somehow, you just just tie on that point there about the hippo, uh, wait, not the, uh, was it, was dopamine it? neurogenesis. Dopamine yeah. neurogenesis, yeah. Exercise, yeah. And exercise, yeah. Mm-hmm. That it, that yeah, even though it's not rewarding at the time, yeah, it kind of seems to tie into that type two fun idea. You're getting a type two reward. Yeah, it totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I I wondered this too. I think there's also just like motor behaviors in general. Like moving around seems to involve uh, a lot of dopamine, um, and so does rewarding stuff. And I think there's this is still a pretty active area of research, just understanding why those th- things both converge on the same system. Um, if it's just about like learning to do more behaviors, maybe when you exercise, you kind of end up learning a little bit, um, and um, those circuits, same circuits, are activated. I don't know. Yeah. It's a whole. It could be its own podcast. Time back to the not going to the office thing. That's impoverishing my yeah. moving around uh, mm-hmm. reward. It's wild. Um, probably for my dog too. It's like he's he's just off camera and recording. I feel so bad for him that it's like 
we're in this apartment like most days all day. It's like a brief walk. And I'm like, this has got to be so bad for both of us. And you're like reaffirming that now with the neuroscience. I just looked at him and he's passed out with his tongue out. I think he just woke up. So he might not be, might be all right with his dopamine sparse. It comes and goes. It's nice. It is nice to be able to have that midday nap that was always awkward in the office, yeah. but I would do anyway. Um, so yeah, so um, we've talked about simulated intelligence. Um, we've talked about physical simulation. Uh, so let's get into reinforcement learning. So um, your PhD at Princeton, uh, your dissertation was about learning neural representations that support efficient reinforcement learning. So um, maybe you could like you could give us a quick introduction to reinforcement learning yeah. in general for our audience members who aren't aware of it. Although I have I've had for people who want like a deep dive, I've done re entire episodes just explaining what reinforcement learning is. So like um, if it's episode, um, I don't know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Oh, here it is. It's episode number 510. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it was specifically on like how reinforcement learning works. Um, but yeah, you could you know give an explanation for our audience and then kind of tie together what it meant in the broader sense. Yeah, of yeah, I can give a quick, quick summary. Um, I mean, so basically reinforcement learning um, is learning from uh, trial and error. Um, and just seeing what the outcomes are and how good it is and then um, repeating things that led to reward. The kind of classic example is like if you're training a dog, then you can't tell the dog what you want. The dog doesn't really like have any intrinsic desire to sit or stay, if anything, quite the opposite. Um, but if you um, give the dog a treat whenever it sits um, and he, after hearing the word sit, you'll gradually modify the dog's behavior um, in order to, to sit when it uh, hears that sound, just in order to maximize the probability of a treat. So this kind of like style of like, you get a treat if you do a certain behavior, you're more likely to repeat that behavior, that's essentially reinforcement learning. That was a great way of explaining it. Thanks. Yeah, yeah I think um, I, as, as somebody who's like pretty food motivated, I think that example like really relates to, <laughs> I, I really empathize with that. I think one thing, the, the counter to that, I think that that intuition makes reinforcement learning seem really like warm and loving and friendly. Like, oh, you did such a good job. You get a reward, a gold star, a piece of chocolate, a little dog bone or whatever. Um, and there's an aspect to reinforcement learning that I think is, a bit, um, a bit more brutal too, especially when you think about it in the context of human learning. Like, if I, the, the, if I was trying to train you to learn biology, if I was a biology teacher and I, I had uh, a, a duty to do that, um, there's a bunch of different ways I could do that. I could give you lots of textbooks and lots of material, and then you could try and uh, train yourself to identify patterns or predict the next word in a biology textbook or some kind of like more pattern-based process. You could try to just take a bunch of biology tests and try answers out and then see what the actual answers were and, and modify your understanding of biology to maximize it. These are both unsupervised or supervised learning. The reinforcement learning version of this would be if I had you take a biology test and I didn't tell you what you got right or wrong, um, I just told you what your score was at the end. And I didn't tell you what the right answers were. I was just like, you got 35. And you were like, is that out of? 100, is that out of 1,000, is that out of 35? Was that good or bad? Well, 35. Later you take another test, you get 37. Why, what helped? I don't know, you're just getting point totals and you have to like reverse engineer a pattern of behavior from this extremely sparse feedback. It's almost like 
for very large-scale problems, uh, it's nice because it sets up this very general learning problem that's like quite representative of the challenge of how do you autonomously reason about the world. Um, but it also is very uh, sparse in the information that it, it gives you and the structure that it has. It can feel almost like a little bit passive-aggressive. <laughs> Just like, 35, <laughs> what yeah. do I do with that? Yeah. <laughs> um, that was a great analogy, so yeah, that's that's the most interesting explanation of reinforcement learning I've ever heard. <laughs> and it ties really well into my intro on you as we started our conversation about you just having incredible talks. Um, so, yeah, so how does, like, how, you know, how is this a neuroscience dissertation, for example, is like a question. So, like, yeah. how was studying learning neural representations that support efficient reinforcement learning, you know, how is that a neuroscience PhD? Yeah, so the, the reinforcement learning problem, the, the role that that serves in neuroscience um, is it's a model of how humans and animals learn from reward. They learn, learn to do something that in, increases the amount of reward they get, whether that's food or just some kind of right, abstract right, right, sense right. of survival. Um, and as, the, as like my second example is kind of intended to illustrate, actually doing this in an efficient way, in an attractable way, is really challenging. Um, if you're just kind of stumbling around in the world trying to identify patterns in what leads to reward, um, you will be stumbling for a really long time and you might stumble into some really bad situations that are not ideal for your survival, like right. off a cliff, um, the uh, into traffic. <laughs> like you, you don't want to learn everything in a way that's strictly bound to reward. Um, so um, what 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 we did, what the subject of my PhD dissertation was, was trying to understand how um, we organize experience in order to identify useful candidates for reward. Um, so like how do you build a model of your environment, a representation of your experiences and, and how they relate to each other, um, and then use that as some scaffolding so you're coming to the reinforcement learning problem with a warm start. Um, in the context of navigation, I don't want to be just stumbling around for a maze for a while, not learning anything until the first time I find uh, a, a tasty treat or a bite of cheese or something. I want to be learning about the structure of this environment and how I can go down different channels and how I can get back to the start if I want to. That way, when I do finally experience some reward, I can link that to all the other places I've been and, and learned about. Um, so the, this, this relates to the, the hippocampus, um, it, uh, an area that seems to have a lot to do with our, our representations of the environment, what we do with new memories that we experience. Um, so the topic of my dissertation was how do we, what, what kind of representation of these experiences that we have um, is going to be the, the, the best organization or, or represent the most concise statistics for a downstream reinforcement learning agent. Very interesting. So these... Uh you know, you're a theoretical neuroscientist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so this kind of ties into this idea of, so like these insights that you were making then, they also were insights that are applicable to both machine learning and biological organisms learning, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So in this particular case, the, the, the model we were using, um, the, the whole literature on representation learning that we were appealing to was a literature that came out of machine learning um, from this problem of how should an artificial agent um, represent its environment to make downstream learning processes more efficient. Um, and so we used the particular model that we used in this was something called the successor representation, uh, a, a paper from Peter Diane, like in the, in the 90s, uh, first introduced this idea that you can represent information about 
what's going to happen in the future. And if you compactly summarize predictions about what's going to happen in the future, this has a lot of information that's also likely to be relevant to predicting how much reward you can get in the future. Um, I think the, the kind of simple intuition is if I, if I approximately know what's going to happen and where I'm going to go, and then later I find out one possible place I might go is rewarding, then I know how much reward I'll get at that location. Like it's, it sort of sets you up to do a whole suite of prediction problems one of which is predicting reward. Right, and so you just said location again there, and that like that ties into, so a lot of your most cited research is about cognitive maps mm -hmm. in the hippocampus and entorhinal cortex, which we haven't talked about. I don't know if you want to talk about entorhinal cortex. Uh, entorhinal cortex, well, we'll see. We'll see if it comes up <laughs> organically. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so it's it seems like we're getting this clear picture here or I'm starting to get this clear picture, that, so, the, like my next question for you, thanks to Serge, is what makes the hippocampus a map? And so I have this vague memory of you being able to say, you know, I can't remember exactly how it was measured, but you could have the sense that when a rat learns a maze, mm -hmm. that it actually, like, the two-dimensional shape of that maze is represented roughly two-dimensionally in the same layout in their hippocampus. Yeah, so this is pretty, I, many decades ago in the 40s, um, this, this uh, cognitive psychologist, um, Tolman, introduced this idea of a cognitive map, kind of like a, 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 an early way of discussing mental models in a way. Um, and he used it to describe uh, the reasoning behaviors that he observed in rodents and in cats when they were like placed in a maze or a box and then had to figure out their way out. Um, and in, in contrast to the dominant view at the time that animals really just learn associations between observations and rewards, um, he described this process where it looked like they were building some sort of cognitive map that could be reasoned about and iterated over and different paths through it could be explored. Um, and then, so this, this was kind of a, a dominant metaphor for thinking about mental models in, in the brain um, that are sort of map-like. Um, and then in, um, later on, they, uh, John O'Keefe was the, the first person to report place cells. Uh, he, got the, he and uh, the, the Mosers, who also did some experiments in, with grid cells, got the Nobel Prize for this a few years ago. Grid cells, like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just a, a huge body of work has like, blossomed around these discoveries. Um, but it's, it basically seems like this kind of abstract idea of a cognitive map had a really literal correlate. And that if you record from the brain of a, uh, of a rodent as it's running around, a rat or a mouse, um, if you record from its hippocampus, you find these cells um, that they call place cells that fire for particular locations. Um, so if you have like a little rat running around this table, whenever it's in one corner, you'll have some place cells that care about that corner will fire and different cells will care about different locations in space. Um, so and those are in the hippocampus. Those are in the hippocampus, yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, and collectively, the entire population of neurons will all code different locations and comprise this whole map of, of space. Um, so this is where this idea that hippocampus is a cognitive map comes from. Um, and there's, um, there's a lot of other stuff that hippocampus encodes too. Um, one really interesting study, um, Dmitry Aronov uh, did this study um, when, during his postdoc, um, is that if you have tasks that aren't spatial, in, in this case, the, it was an auditory task where the animals heard a rising tone um, and they had to release, they, it was basically like you know classic psychology, rat presses a lever, then releases it at some point. Um, if, if, 
if it has to release the lever at a target pitch instead of go to a target goal location, you see the same kind of cells, but they care about pitch rather than space. So it seems potentially like this is a more general memory area than, than just being a map. Um, but it certainly has a lot of spatial receptivity. It, it, it encodes a lot of dimensions of space. Yeah, it kind of sounds like it's something that I hadn't really thought of before that has come up many times in this conversation, though maybe not quite so directly is what I'm about to ask, is that it seems clear that our spatial understanding of the world seems to relate to so many other kinds mm. of memories. Like it seems like so much of, yeah, it's just, I mean, this is several times in the conversation now, you've, you've brought up how memory formation in general, it seems like, often has this kind of spatial component. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. I think a big part of um, the, the a, a big thing that we wanted to do in the uh, modeling projects that I worked on in my PhD was, um, try to have a mathematical model that didn't assume spatial structure as a given. Um, so we, we kind of formulated it um, in, in the, the classic RL way, which is basically instead of specific locations in space, you have states. And those states could be locations in space. They could be more generally um, the state of, you know, having eaten that day or not, or the state of a particular tone you're listening to, some other aspect of experience. Um, and then have... Uh, you, you can reason about relations between locations in space. You could reason about uh, relations between different states you're experiencing too. Um, and the, the reason for this is that memory and space seem to relate in a pretty complex way. Um, and a lot of the literature on hippocampus is on general memory formation. A lot of it is specifically on representations of space. Um, and we wanted to try and use a modeling framework that was a bit agnostic, that could apply equally well to spatial situations, but also other kinds of memory structures you might be reasoning about, other sorts of associative systems that you might want to be navigating. Nice. Yeah, super interesting. And so this kind of ties into, so uh, a week ago at the time of recording, I posted on LinkedIn that I would be interviewing on the show. There were tons of reactions. And we had a question from Raju Bazumatari. Mm -hmm. Uh, who's based in Toronto, and Raju said, I had a question for you, which was, based on neuroscience research and training machine learning models, what advice do you have for everyday folks to build their faculties? And it kind of sounds like we have a practical answer here. It sounds like um, taking advantage of this uh, spatial relationship in, in mm -hmm. learning, like there might be something about uh, you know, if you, if you go to a new place to learn something new, mm -hmm. it might be easier to remember that new thing because you can kind of associate it with that space in your mind. Does yeah. that seem like a reasonable yeah, kind Yeah, of that's, I, absolutely. I mean, so I, I think I should probably direct this, like, in answering this question, appeal more to the, the specific topics I study. I think that, like, the first things that come to mind is, like, probably just exercise and getting a lot of sleep or the, the single best <laughs> things you can do for your brain. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think the... A, a key in, in, so in Alzheimer's, for instance, or in, in developing, as, as, as the brain ages and loses some of its cognitive faculties, one of the, um, the, the main signatures of this is that you get um, a worse coordination between hippocampus and prefrontal cortex. The hippocampus isn't talking to the rest of the brain quite as well. Um, and some of the things that have been shown to delay this are 
um, well, exercise and, and sleep is, is supposed to help a lot. And other things are just continuing to cognitively stretch your brain in new ways, like exploring novel environments, probably something in that category. Crosswords is something people talk about. Like yeah, continue search. Yeah, exactly. Continue searching your memory, continue doing new things, continue to like mix and match ideas um, and, and experiences in new ways. Um, I think also just um, uh, trying to do things, this, this almost sounds too positive to be true, but I think um, doing things that you um, enjoy or find salient or stimulating in some way, those are the kinds of things that wash hippocampus with dopamine, get a bunch of uh, new neurons to stick around. Um, th that, that kind of like salient input is really useful for um, having a healthy hippocampus. Um, in fact, in depression, uh, hippocampal volume tends to go down. There's less, the, the hypothesis at least being that you just have fewer joyful or otherwise salient things breaking through and, and exciting hippocampus. Whoa, I didn't yeah. know that. Kind of a, 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 a yeah, kind of a, a sad way to think about it. But. Yeah, so you got those London cab drivers with their giant hippocampi. Just in a sheer uh, state of people bliss. with their shriveled little ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, don't ask them for directions. If you have a depressed <laughs> friend, don't ask them for directions. <laughs> <laughs> that is not neuroscience advice that you heard on the show. <laughs> yeah. don't, tra don't trade on that. That's not financial advice. Um, okay, so uh, kind of back to the script here a bit. Uh, thank you for answering that audience question. Um, so, um, yeah, so something, so we talked about dopamine um, and uh, serotonin. These are kind of like, these are neurotransmitters, brain molecules that uh, that give us a kind of a feeling of, of positivity. In fact, we might be able to say that we actually don't enjoy anything in the world except dopamine and serotonin. <laughs> it, yeah, um, I, I don't have any evidence to the contrary. I guess epinephrine seems to, adrenaline oh, yeah, seems yeah. to have its perks, but maybe just through dopamine, who knows? Anyway, right. I'll answer your question more um, uh, specifically. But yeah, so there's, um, there's this reward prediction error hypothesis R-P-E-H, um, which is a leading theory in neuroscience related to dopamine. You know a lot about it. I think it kind of it ties into the reinforcement learning stuff that we've been talking about recently. Tell us about it. Yeah, so the, um, the reward prediction error hypothesis. So I guess first I'll introduce a reward prediction error. Um, this is a, uh, a, a big deal in reinforcement learning. Um, basically, the idea is that um, as you go through life, you're making expectations about how much reward you're going to get, how, how rewarding different outcomes will be. Um, and you're, you're tracking this because you want to build a good model of how rewarding different actions are, how rewarding different states can be, so that you can take actions that maximize them. Um, and a lot of these, uh, the algorithms that do reinforcement learning, a, a key substrate of them is this thing called the reward prediction error. And this is the difference between how much reward you actually get and how much reward you predicted. Um, and then when you, you have this surprise signal, this reward prediction error, you update your expectations. If it was a positive one, you say, okay, that actually went a bit better than expected. I'm gonna um, be more optimistic next time. If it was a negative prediction error, you will be more pessimistic and, and uh, anticipate less reward in the future. Um, so this is kind of simple learning rule, just make expectations, see how they go, update accordingly. Um, and, it's, um, and it ends up being like a pretty powerful thing that you can really scale up to some large scale machine learning systems. Um, in the, um, as it relates to dopamine, there's a hypothesis that the, the um, activity of dopamine neurons is encoding a reward prediction error. 
Um, and there's some, um, there's, there's some experiments. I think that the original experiment on this was uh, Schultz, Diane, and Montague, I want to say. Um, and um, they recorded um, dopamine neurons in a task where an animal was um, getting reward, sometimes predicted by a cue, sometimes not. Um, and what they found was that the firing of these neurons corresponded really well to what you would expect if they were encoding a prediction error. Um, I can do. I can go into more. Go for yeah, it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The um, I mean, so basically, the setup was uh, the the animal is sitting there, um, and then sometimes it gets a little bit of juice, and juice is very rewarding. Um, so you'd see a little firing of dopamine neurons whenever the the animal got the juice. Um, then they set up something called a Pavlovian conditioning setting. And what this basically means is the animal's sitting there, it hears a tone, and then a few seconds later, it gets a bit of juice. Um, so after a little while, it picks up on this pattern, and whenever it hears the tone, it's like, ah, I'm going to get some juice soon. This could be great. Um, what they see in that case is that when they hear the tone, they get the dopamine firing. The, that tone is predictive of reward. They were just sitting there not knowing what was going to happen, and then boom, something that's indicative of future reward happens lots of dopamine. Later on, when the reward actually happened, no dopamine, because the dopamine wasn't surprising anymore. Um, so this is really, this is consistent with this idea that dopamine is, is signaling unexpected reward. Um, they also found that if they didn't get the reward later on, dopamine neurons went far below their baseline rate of firing. So instead of just kind of chirping along at their average rate, um, they would actually go quiet for a second, as if saying like, hey, where's my reward? I thought I had predicted some reward happening. Um, so that's kind of the yeah. like foundational reward prediction error hypothesis. And you uh, can story. actually, you can, that's so interesting because that, what you, everything you just described, you can, I can appreciate that uh, subjectively mm. as an experience that I have regularly. It's yeah. like you're constantly on the lookout for something like, like new and surprising. And I guess that's kind of like how, Things like the TikTok algorithm have been like so mm. touted. I avoid TikTok because I mean I have, a, I, have a, I have a TikTok account that I don't think it's really taking off like we thought it would. Mm. We post we we post like clips like thirty second, sixty yeah. second clips from episodes of like concrete bits of conversation from these episodes on TikTok and like sometimes you know I know people who are like yeah I just got like two million views and I'm like well, I got like twenty I don't know I don't know for some reason the super data science isn't taking off in the TikTok algorithm but maybe it will. Maybe this is the conversation that will. I'm terrified of TikTok, and I think because uh, I'm also terrified of it just hacking my rewards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because so it seems to do a really good job of giving you new surprising things. Yeah. Like you're actually, so it's, it's become, it's a new, uh, new level mm -hmm. of product manager warfare against human minds mm. <laughs> yeah. and hacking our brains and being able to g g continually surprise us and delight us with unexpected new things because that is that is what we're looking for. So, so yeah, so like tying back to this, like I have, and I'm sure all of our listeners have had this experience of, you know, something that you know you should enjoy, mm. but because it happened exactly as like you expected, there was no surprise there. Mm -hmm. It's just like baseline, no extra dopamine, no extra good feeling. But if that thing that you expected and then routinely happens um, is taken away from you, mm -hmm. then you, yeah, you experience sadness. Yeah. Uh, like yeah. the opposite. 
you know, jonesing for some dopamine. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's very, it's easy to anthropomorphize uh, specifically, do, which maybe is fine. I mean, it's part of, it's, it's in the brain. Yeah. <laughs> but it's easy to, to uh, really empathize with dopamine neurons. Um, yeah. yeah. The other really important thing that your um, animals drinking juice story reminded me of, uh, and this might be a uniquely Canadian thing, but we had this song, this camp song. There was a great big moose. <laughs> he liked to drink a lot of juice. Yeah, we didn't have that in New Jersey. <laughs> That's cute, though. <laughs> <laughs> Probably inspired by that reason. Um, <laughs> so, uh, nice. Yeah, so we've covered most of the topics generally that we wanted to cover, even if we didn't get to dig into all of the wonderful questions that were prepared, but I think we've had a great conversation in around these topics anyway. The last kind of uh, big topic area, technical topic area to go over is this idea of um, compression. Mm, yeah. So in papers you've discussed how the brain compresses representations for future planning and previous trajectories, so-called hippocampal replay. Um, so and uh, a recent paper called Language Modeling is Compression by DeepMind and Meta explores the relationship between prediction capabilities and compression. So your work emphasizes predictions, and compression as key elements in representation learning. So I feel like maybe we haven't even talked about, maybe we need to refine, define representation learning, mm -hmm. uh, which we haven't probably done uh, specifically. But then yeah, they, I'm sure you have lots of interesting things to say for, you know, related to this compression and how it relates to both the brain and artificial systems. Yeah, yeah, so representation learning um, generally is this problem of learning to, learning how to represent your observations. Um, you, you have all of these things that you experience. Um, what is the format that, that this experience should take? If, in, if, I, if I think about this current setting I'm in right now, I'm sitting at this table, I'm mic'd in, um, I'm in the middle of speaking. Like These are all aspects of my experience that I want to represent in some way that have some relevance to like what I'm about to do. Um, and I don't want to get distracted by irrelevant things. I, if I'm in the middle of a sentence, uh, I really want to remember the beginning of that sentence, but maybe I don't need to be aware of like the cool strap on that guitar with its bird pattern. Like that's kind of neat and I could access that knowledge in a different situation, but being able to focus on specifically relevant information, not getting distracted by other things, um, is, is really important. Um, the flip side of this is if I, if I wait for experience to, to justify every bit of information before I learn anything, I just haven't constructed enough of a map. I haven't really like been using my, my knowledge or my experience and like organizing it in a way that can support any information. Um, so representation learning is like, what sort of objective should you use to, to learn a representation? What information is relevant? What is irrelevant? What should I keep around? How do I represent it in a way that is both expressive enough and compact enough to support intelligent but also efficient behavior? Um, so prediction and compression are two, um, two objectives really that like come up in this. Um, prediction when, when cast as an objective is saying, I wanna be as good as possible at, at predicting what's going to happen next. Um, I wanna be able to make predictions about what's gonna happen because whatever, uh, whatever is relevant to predicting things in the future, um, that's probably something that's not just random noise, it's something that'll at least like persist in time for a little bit. Maybe that's an outcome I wanna maximize at some point. Um, compression is more about how do I represent things succinctly? 
Um, how do I uh, try to uh, have short descriptions of what's going to happen, have, have a sort of uh, more, it, it's, a, it's a way to summarize events rather than expressing them in, in their full detail. Um, this can be useful for efficiency. You just have fewer things that you have to learn about if you have a more compressed representation. Um, it also can be really useful for identifying abstractions. Um, one of the, the things that is that, that emerges when you apply compression, when you try to make your descriptions be more succinct, is that you get more overlap between related ideas. Um, and this is really useful as a way to start um, in getting some elements of abstraction out. So for instance, if I want to, um, uh, if I have lots of pictures of elephants that I've seen, I can represent them more compactly if I just have the concept of an elephant. And here are lots of specific uh, inst instances of it, but I have this more general concept that unifies them all with a single description. Um, I might also have a, a, a compression or a compact representation of all of the things I've ever seen before that are pink. Um, and there's maybe different kinds of instances. They manifest in different ways, but there's one property in common, which is pink. And if I try to have a compressed representation, that's a concept that might emerge. Um, and as it relates to abstraction and compositionality, once you kind of have these things pull out and part of a compact summary, you can start reasoning about more interactions between them. I can now have a pink elephant because I, pink is something that popped out and elephant is something that popped out just of compression. Um, so it's useful just for efficiency, um, but it's also useful at, like a, at a deep level for trying to extract patterns and rules in the world. Yeah, so this all makes perfect sense. So um, representation learning is just this general idea that we are probably familiar with anecdotally, subjectively as individuals, where it's, you know, it's just the representation of information. And as we do that, we want to compress that information as succinctly as possible, probably in, in uh, as many circumstances as possible so that that reduces cognitive load. Mm -hmm. So we want these representations to be efficient, which allows us to yeah, have uh, kind of more thoughts and that allow us to hopefully be able to make predictions mm -hmm. better, get more dopamine reward per unit of mental effort um, yeah. in, in the planning that we're doing. And, um, and then, so you saying that, it seems almost trivially obvious mm -hmm. that language modeling is compression. Because I, it just seems extremely obvious that at, you know, saying the word elephant mm -hmm. and that being able to represent a big gray object with four legs and a nose and big ears, it's like you compress all of these ideas about an object into a few syllables, into mm -hmm. one word, elephant. And it, we can we make up words for theoretical concepts like corporation and love. And so you have, you're able to compress mm -hmm. huge complex things into a single word, and then that makes it easier to play around with these and have them bump into each other and think about a loving company or something, which yeah. like, if you don't have <laughs> these words, it could be difficult to think about these quite disparate concepts together. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I think absolutely. I think one thing that was a, a cool aha moment for me was, was realizing that I, I used to think of compression maybe as just like something you had to do because you had limited resources. Like the brain is not infinite. We have working memory constraints. We have only so many neurons and only so much food to power them. So you have to compress stuff. Um, but I think this idea that it actually has enormous computational benefits too, that it's, it's a deep part of the 
reasoning process where you identify commonalities between different situations can be expressed as compression um, was kind of cool. That it's not just kind of a, uh, a, a um, like a compromise or something that you have to do in order to, to make it work, but it actually has real advantages. Nice. And so this ties back neatly to, again, we got to talk about LLMs. Every episode has to be about LLMs. <laughs> and so this kind of interestingly ties into this idea of, you know, you describing tokens as being so widely useful. Mm -hmm. And in large language models, we're using tokens to represent tokens of language, subwords mm -hmm. per token. And yeah, and so this seems to kind of naturally tie into a lot of stuff we were talking about a while ago in the episode where we were saying things like, you know, spatial... Spatial representations could be stored in language tokens. You mm. could say, um, you know, you could describe a scene. Like this often happens in novels where it's like describing a visual scene and you don't need pictures in the book to be able to imagine what that might be like. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so that all, that all makes a lot of sense to me. Um, really quickly, I think, I think we've covered probably... A, enough technical content for this episode. This has been a long one. Thank you for being so generous <laughs> with your time. Um, but on top of that, you also, just in terms of like general interest stuff, you hold black belts in both a type of karate that I'm probably just going to butcher, Ishinryu? Ishinryu. Ishinryu karate and Taekwondo. So you have black belts in both this kind of karate and Taekwondo. Uh, so, you know, that must have required a lot of uh, discipline and dedication, a lot of type two reward <laughs> happening there. Um, do you think that doing that kind of stuff has been helpful in you being a rigorous academic and you know kind of achieving the success you've had working at the greatest AI lab in the world, that kind of stuff? I could wax lyrical on how much martial arts has like been you wax on wax off yeah <laughs> <laughs> should have seen that one coming yeah i mean i i honestly it's just been foundational to to like every uh almost every aspect of like my adult personality um i've been doing martial arts for a really long time i started when i was like six years old at karate um my parents actually met at a karate school so sort of a, a thing they had been doing for a long time too um i think the yeah, I mean, I think the main thing that I've, uh, the, the thing that I think about the most often in terms of uh, how karate has informed my uh, scientific life um, is that I always really enjoyed, my, my favorite activity in karate was always sparring. Like, I just, like, could not get enough sparring. Whenever it was yeah. my birthday and I got to pick the activity, we were always sparring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, and I think... Do you want an ice cream cake? No, I want to punch you in the face. <laughs> yeah. I mean, more or less. The, um, <laughs> and I think a, a thing that's really different about um, sparring or fighting if you're part of a, of a karate school or a, or a taekwondo club um, in, in TV or in, in kung fu movies, in The Karate Kid, that whenever there's fighting, there's often real animosity between the people fighting. It's a big like tournament and the other guy is bad and beating him is good. And there's real, the fighting corresponds to an actual animosity. But that's so not how it is if you're actually in a karate school. Like you're sparring with your best friends and people you really like and people you don't actually want to see hurt or injured. Um, and you're sparring just because it's, it's fun, it's improvisational, you're building skills, you're helping them build skills. Um, it's, it's a much more constructive activity, but it's still really combative. I think that's just like a really excellent thing to get used to for scientific discourse, that you uh, often have like, you have disagreements, you have different ideas, you're trying to sort them through, but you're in a community and you're, you're trying to um, 
you're trying to figure out what's right. You're trying to be skeptical and like sometimes adversarial, but in a way that's ultimately really constructive and pro-social. I think knowing the difference between um, like fighting or, or combat or adversarial situations that are more constructive and ones that are not constructive is really useful. And being able to be um, like adversarial in a way that is constructive um, is uh, a thing that takes a little bit of practice. Um, and I think that I, I, uh, karate really helped me develop it, more of an intuition for that. That was such a beautiful way of describing it. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much, <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, one last thing here is for folks who want to be a computational neuroscientist or an AI researcher like you, what should they do? What skills should they hone other than karate? Uh, yeah, so um, what skills, uh, so okay, what skills for neuroscience or machine learning? Um, Neuroscience is super interdisciplinary. I think one thing I was struck by when I first started in, in graduate school is, is one, there isn't really a standard core curriculum. Every single department has their own intro class and you learn different stuff, somewhat just based on the whims of the professors in the department. Um, and also everybody coming into my class had a, a, a pretty different um, uh, experience from undergrad. Some people knew more about psychology, more about math, more about engineering, uh, more about the really like low level neuroscience or biology. There was just a massive spread. Um, and I think basically neuroscience is just in this fairly early stage for a science where the fundamentals are still kind of in development, really like the philosophy of the field is kind of in flux. Um, makes it a really, really exciting time to be in the, the field. There's, there's a lot of turnover of different modeling ideas, new constant, introduction of new methods. Um, I, uh, I personally had experience in math and engineering. Um, the skills I found most useful are, are programming and really just being able to code stuff up um, and as, as a way to kind of um, sketch out or check intuitions about a mathematical model. Um, and, and math uh, is really useful just as kind of a, a more persistent um, base of, of scaffolding ideas that basically like there's these ideas that aren't going to be changing with fads every second um, and they help you think about um, concepts like uh, representation and uh, how to like do different logical operations and execute computations in, in kind of general way. Um, so that's been really useful to me. Um, the um, uh, philosophy also, honestly, has been really useful just Whoa, for like- that thinking. was unexpected. <laughs> yeah, I know, <laughs> for thinking. Um, I, I took some like philosophy of mind courses in college. Um, and I still think about those ideas a lot. I think um, especially once you, they're, they're not gonna necessarily be the skills that help you get a job, but they will help you do the job properly and, and think about the, the implications. I think in general as, as um, neuroscience affects people pretty directly, people are the, the you know, havers of brains. Um, and AI is really out in the world doing stuff. Um, and questions of ethics and uh, humanities and how these are actually gonna like affect the world and society. Um, I, in a lot of ways, people have thought about them for a while. And in a lot of ways, people kind of feel like they're, they're laying down the tracks as the train is going. Um, so having knowledge in those areas um, will maybe not aren't the most sought after for getting a job, but they will help you think about the implications of what you're doing a bit more thoughtfully. Really cool answer. Um, did not see the philosophy of mind <laughs> part coming, but it makes so much sense. And yeah, definitely something I would love to dig into more. And it sounds like if I can twist Neil's arm to be on the show, then we'll have uh, a theory of mind AI mm -hmm. episode sometime in the near future to check out. Um, before I let you go, um, book recommendation. 
Uh, do you have anything for us? Yeah, I so a book I thought about a lot in um, in in really like thinking about some of the answers to the the simulation questions, like what is the role of simulation, what kinds of physical processes are hard to model, um, is this book. It's a physics book by Carlo Rovelli. He's a really cool guy. He's a, a physicist, and he just writes these like wonderful popular science books about physics. Um, and um, this book, The Order of Time, it's about entropy, it's about complexity, it's, it's just a really cool book. And he, he talks a lot about um, like fluid dynamics um, and why it's such a hard to model system. Um, there's just a bunch of like kind of fun, mind-blowing facts in there. Um, I think one of the things he, he says about fluid dynamics that I found particularly evocative and I think like illustrates why simulation is so important in this domain is that Compared to most of the problems that are the frontier of physics are things that are very far away from our experience. They're things that are microscopically small, massively, cosmically huge, so hot that we would just, you know, explode if we touch them. Like, there, there are things that are hard to look at. And fluid dynamics is, is not that way, but it's still really hard to capture because it's such a complex and sensitive phenomenon. So annoyingly fluid, yes. those fluids. <laughs> it's very elusive. <laughs> still, still. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You can, like, you can pour milk into your coffee cup and watch it swirl around, and that's like the frontier of physical knowledge on that subject. It's really like, it's both proximal, but very mysterious and elusive. So he has some really like poetic, lovely uh, examples and, and ways of seeing the world that I just think is fantastic. Nice, that sounds really cool. Great recommendation. And then, how can people follow you after this episode? Clearly, you're brilliant. I hope it won't be too long before we can get you on the show again, because we, we, we asked like 5 or 10% of the questions that we had prepared, because there were just so <laughs> many interesting things that I immediately thought of that I wanted to ask you about, uh, and kind of naturally flowed with the conversation. So yeah, I really do hope to have you on again soon. But in the meantime, how can people follow you to get your thoughts? Um, so I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is NeuroKim. Um, and um, I also have a website, um, which is neurokim.com. Um, it should be easy enough to remember first syllable of my name and the word neuro. Perfect. Love it. We'll be sure to include those in the show notes. Kim, thank you so much for making the trip to record here in New York with me. And I had so much fun. I hope a lot of our, I'm sure a lot of our listeners did as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a genuine delight. Feels like we only just scratched the surface of Kim's tremendous knowledge and crystal clear analogies today. Hopefully we can get her back on the show soon to continue the conversation. In today's episode, Kim filled us in on how we can much more efficiently make predictions about the physical world using machine learning models, including learned simulations of mental simulations relative to classical simulations that try to capture all of the underlying physics. She also talked about how our brain's hippocampus is key for memory formation and is a cognitive map of physical space. She filled us in on the best things for our cognitive abilities, including exercise, sleep, exploring new environments, learning new skills, crosswords in particular, and doing things you enjoy. She also talked about how the dopamine reward prediction error hypothesis leads us to seek to have our expectations always exceeded, and so simply having our expectations met can lead to a feeling of slight disappointment. And she talked about how sparring with her friends in martial arts cultivated her capacity for constructive scientific discourse. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, as well as the URLs for Kim's social media profiles and my own at superdatascience.com slash 725. Beyond social media, we could also meet in person this Friday, October 27th at the Scale Up AI Conference, 
at which I'll be interviewing GitHub COO Kyle Daigle live on stage. You can check it out in person in New York, or you can stream it online anywhere in the world. The conference is put on by Insight Partners, one of the world's largest hedge funds, and is targeted at folks who are ready to scale AI businesses or scale up their business with AI. You can use my code JKAI35, that's in all caps, JKAI35, to get 35% off on your registration. All right, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another extraordinary episode for us today. You can support this show by checking out our sponsors' links, by sharing, by reviewing, by subscribing, but most of all, just by continuing to tune in. I'm so grateful to have you listening, and I hope I can continue to make episodes you love for years and years to come. Until next time, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.